If you have a Bible with you, this morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses, 20, or verses 11 through 22. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would um, not only open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, but I pray that you would heal the brokenhearted, that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would uh, save, that you would make your uh, salvation uh, effective in perhaps someone who has not known the gospel, and I pray that you would make it effective for those of us who have known it maybe for a long time. Pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you have been here for a while, you'll know that we have tech issues every now and then. There we go. <laughs> you know, we're in the middle of a series. Actually, we're almost at the very end. We're at number 13 out of 14 in a series on race, ethnicity, and mission. We've gone all the way from Genesis chapter 1, and we will end in the book of Revelation. And today, before we get to the end, remember I've told you this whole time that when you look at the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, what you see is every people from every tongue, tribe, and nation around the throne of God singing praise to the Lamb. That's the end. Like whether you, whether you want to want it to be the end or not, that's where things are headed, and you can either facilitate it or you can buck it, but that's where we're going to, to end up. This morning, the, book, the passage we're going to look at takes a step just, just prior to that step. In other words, today's, the question we're going to be talking about today is what is the logical end of the gospel? Like, like would, when we think about the logical end of the gospel, the average Christian, you say, what's the, the, the logical end of the gospel? And you say, well, Oh, Jesus, Jesus saves me. Okay, true. Or you say that, you know, Jesus is my personal savior. That's, that's true. Or even that Jesus is going to make all things new. That's true. Well, what's interesting this morning as we look at the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians is different than the rest of Paul's letters. And, it, and it's important to set today's passage in context because most of the rest of Paul's letters that we read, Galatians, Philippians, they're all written to address some kind of problem. 
And, and in fact, they're all written oftentimes to address some kind of racial problem or ethnic problem or conflict between people. The book of Ephesians, so far as we know at this time, there weren't, there, Paul wasn't writing to address a problem. It's almost like he's writing a mini tract on the gospel just for them. In, in other words, he wants to explain God's work in the gospel and he wants to explain the application of the gospel. So the first three chapters, he, said, he explains the gospel. Here's, here's what Jesus has done. In the second three chapters, he says, now here's what it should look like in your life. No problem specifically is being addressed. Now, the reason that is so important is because that means that when Paul talks about the logical end of the gospel in this passage that we're going to look at today, it's the logical end. He's, in other words, when we tend to think about what does it mean to be a Christian, we tend to think, well, you know, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't cheat, I shouldn't be a racist. Those, well, that's true. But what Paul says today about races and racial reconciliation, it, I, at least for me, it sort of blows my mind that where God is going with the whole thing is taking all of, all of humanity and creating them and taking all these different various races and making them into one new man. That the logical end of the gospel is a new humanity altogether. It's not just that we avoid sin, it's not just that we get saved, but that, that somehow or another a new humanity is being created. So we'll look at three things this morning. The three things Paul is gonna basically give us a reminder to remember. He says twice in the first few verses of this passage to remember. And then he's going to give us a reminder of reconciliation. That what, what is happening in the gospel is reconciliation. In other words, we often talk about, um, at least if in pastoral worlds, you know, we need to pursue racial reconciliation. We need to spend time with uh, churches of other ethnicities and things like that. While all that's true, Paul doesn't say you should do these things. Paul says these things have been accomplished. In other words, when we pursue racial reconciliation, what we're actually doing is we're just living into what we already are. We're living into what has already been accomplished. And the last thing we'll look at is the logical end of the gospel. Let me read you the first two verses here. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So anytime you're like reading the Bible and you see therefore, right, it's a cliche, but you should ask what? What's the therefore? Therefore, what is Paul? Paul's referring back to something. And so what is just, he has just said in verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, for grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, chapter 2 starts with him saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I think around verse 5 he says, but God made you alive in Christ. And then he says, and it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of, of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, he says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Christ makes you alive, and it's by grace. There's no matter works you can do. There's no matter goodness you can provide. There's nothing you can do to, to be saved other than put your faith in the finished work of Jesus. Right? In other words, we're not flailing around in an ocean and almost drowning, and God throws us an inner tube of the gospel. What Paul says is that we're at the bottom of the ocean. And that Jesus came all the way down to the bottom and resuscitated us and takes us back all the way to the top. And Paul reminds us, it is by grace you are saved through faith and this not of yourselves. 
And then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what are those works? And he says, therefore, and he immediately addresses the Gentiles, and he immediately talks about reconciliation. And he immediately talks about how God is taking all of these, these various races and ethnicities and combining them into one new man. In other words, the outworking of being saved by grace is not just that you and I get to avoid hell, but that we are, are part of something bigger. And he immediately addresses the Gentiles. It's interesting. He tells them, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So the first time he, he, first thing he wants to remind the Gentiles specifically is he said, at one point, you were so un- unreconciled from other people that they called you names. Now, think about that. It's one thing to, to, to be alien, to, to not be, let's, let's, let's put it in the context of, of black and white, right, right, in the United States. It's one thing to be a white guy and to not have any black friends. And you can say, is that racist? I, I don't know. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Maybe you just don't live in a place with any black people. It's another thing altogether to be a white guy and to use racial slurs toward black people. Do you, do you understand how, like, one of them is sort of apathetic and ambivalent, and the other is actually very alienated and alienating? That when you begin to use racial slurs about other people, that is a pretty good sign that you are alienated from them. And he says, you Gentiles, remember that at one point, people used racial slurs about you, They called you the uncircumcision, the unclean, the the unfit to be in here with us good Israelites. And frankly, you called them names. You called them the circumcision. Whenever you are looking at people through that lens, there's a good chance you are not reconciled with them. And Paul wants us to know. He says, therefore, you you remember this fact. Remember that you were completely unreconciled from other people. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we tend to think about the gospel in terms of reconciling God to man, and that's true. But what Paul's getting at here is the gospel not only reconciles God to man, but it reconciles man to man and race to race. He says, remember that at one time you were called the uncircumcision, and then he reminds them, he says, and remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the common wealth of Israel and strangers to covenants of promise. Right, so he, he wants them to remember that, first of all, that you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, that you, you were outside, that you were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, and that you were strangers to the promises of the covenant. Think about if you were a part of Israel back in the day of Jesus, even if you, didn't, you weren't a Christian, even if you weren't saved, even if you hadn't, you still had a lot going for you. Right? You had the temple, and you had temple worship, and you had the promises and the covenants and all of these things going for you. You knew the hope. Even if you didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, you still had hope that God was sending a Messiah. You, were still, you still had all of these things going for you. And he's saying, you Gentiles, you didn't have any of that. You, you were outside. You were, you, for, he says you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. They didn't know. And because they didn't know the hope of the gospel, they didn't know the promises of the covenant. Remember that God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. That would have meant all the Gentiles too. They didn't know that. And because of that, it says having no hope and without God in the world. Now, here's what's interesting to me as I thought about it. 
that if you are inside, you actually know that they do have hope. They just don't know they have hope. In other words, it doesn't say that they, they, there is no hope for them. It says they had no hope because they didn't know. And so what's the answer to that? The answer to that is to actually communicate to those outside of the faith that, you know, in fact, there is hope for you. I mean, most of the people who live in the Pacific Northwest, most of the people probably in the five-mile area around our church are separated from Christ. They're outside of the covenants of promise, and they're strangers to, to what it means to be in, in the faith, and therefore have no hope and are without God. And yet we know that they do have hope. We know that they have hope because we have hope. We, we used to be like this. All of us used to be like this. I mean, why is Paul telling the, Gent the Gentile believers in his church to remember these things? Is he telling them to just remind them so you remember what worms you were when God came to save you? I don't think so. What he's doing here is he's, give, he's giving context to the great salvation that God won for them. Remember that you used to be alienated from all these people. Remember you used to be outside of Christ. Remember you used to be strangers to the promise. Remember you used to be without hope. And now you have all these things. It gives the, the Remembering our past gives context to the graces of our present. Many of you, I told you when I made the announcement about sabbatical that I, that I was going to get ready to go through a difficult two-week intensive counseling thing, which I am. Please pray for me. <laughs> and, but I've actually started. And, and it's amazed as I look back at my past at things I've always I've wanted to avoid or things I've not wanted to look at or things I've just frankly forgotten willfully, I think, is I look back now and I can see how many times they were actually severe mercies from God to guard me from something else. That, that to fail to remember them actually means I'm, I, I, I'm not getting as much out of the present grace that God has given me. Judy and I were talking about that this morning. We look back at things that has, have happened in our lives and now look at where God has brought us. That should bring you great joy. I don't think Paul is trying to just hammer the Gentiles. Remember how awful you used to be. It's more giving context to how great God is and what he has done for you now. And he, so he says, remember, he reminds them to remember, but then he reminds them of the reconciliation already accomplished. Notice what he says. And I love those of you who have ever heard me preach more than twice probably have heard me say that the greatest word in the Bible is but. So Paul said, they're having no hope and, and without God in the world, 13, but now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and a peace to those who are near. And for through him we both have access to one spirit. So he says, you used to be far off. He says, but now you are near. And he says, he himself is our peace who has made the both one and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The image Paul is giving here for us I don't know how much it means, but for Jews and Gentiles of, of Jesus and Paul's day, it would have been a, a mind-blowing picture. Because the, the temple that Paul would have been speaking of, the temple was still up. The temple didn't fall till 70 AD, and Paul's probably writing around 60 AD. 
And in the temple, right, you have the Holy of Holies, and then you have the court of, the, of basically where lay people in Israel could go, and then you have the court of the Gentiles, and they were separated by walls. And Paul says that dividing wall has been broken down between the Gentile court and the Jewish court. But what's interesting, I never knew that till this week, is that dividing wall was only four and a half feet tall. In other words, I always, want, I always figured, I just had it in my head, that when he says the dividing wall, that the Jews were on the inside and no one knew what was going on, and the Gentiles were outside just wondering. But no, the Jews were right there, and the Gentiles were just on the other side of the wall. They could see all the things going on. They could see, that, but they were not privy to them. In fact, there were signs on the wall that said, if you cross the wall, if you're a Gentile, you will be killed. And that's not surprising. Remember, the Levitical priests actually were pretty fierce by training. So their job was to keep Gentiles out, and yet they could see in. Now, what's interesting is they wouldn't have been in the court of Gentiles unless they were interested in what was going on in the first place. And Paul is basically saying, all of those of you who are on the, on, just on the other side of the wall, Jesus has broken it down. That The access so long denied to you has been given to you. That wall has been broken down. How has it been broken down? He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making our peace. Now, people argue about this passage and say, well, Jesus did, said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law, and this is contradictory. I think what Paul is saying is he abolished the law as a way to be saved. That the ordinances, that being circumcised, and those kinds of, that you can't, those don't matter anymore, Gentiles. Those don't matter anymore to anybody. What matters is faith in Christ and whether or not you have put your faith in Christ. And notice what Paul says. is that He says he has done this that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace right so jew and gentile and gentile by the way is anyone who's not jewish so you could be a black gentile you could be a white gentile you could be a, a, a black greek gentile you could be any number of things but if you weren't jewish you were a gentile and paul says that by breaking down the dividing wall in the body of his flesh he is creating one new man that, that, that one new man, that your identity, when you become a Christian, your identity changes. It changes from being primarily being a white guy or a black guy or a black woman or a, or a white woman or an Asian man into being one who is in Christ. And what that means is that if you are a, a white Christian, you have more in common in, with, with black Christians than you do white non-Christians. Or if you're a black Christian, you have more in common with, with white Christians than you do black non-Christians. In other words, those who are in Christ are being formed into one new man. We've been given a new identity, and that's super important because we tend to forget issues of identity because, you know, as you think about issues of race, if you think about just sin in general, there's two ways to, to look at things. There's two ways to deal with it. Right? You can think about dealing with race and dealing with sin in terms of, of guilt and shame, which I've talked to you about before here. Right? Guilt is, a, is about what you've done. Guilt is actually valid. And so let's say you, you, do, you sin against another person. You say something. Let, let's say you make an offhanded uh, comment that one of your friends takes to be as racist, and you didn't mean it that way, but they come to you and say, Tommy, that really hurt my feelings, and, and you say, wow, I didn't know that. And you feel guilty, and you feel sorry, and that sorrow leads to repentance, and you 
you ask them to forgive you and they forgive you and you begin this process of reconciliation, right? So guilt can be healthy. The way we tend to try and deal with, with issues of race and ethnicity, at least outside the church, I hope not inside the church, is by way of shame. And shame isn't what you've done. Shame is who you are. And so shame says, Tommy, you're, here's why you're wrong. Here's why there's no hope in life and in death for you, because you're white. Now, if that's the way things are, I can never get better. I can never change. I can never, and nothing in the world can ever make things better. Here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel not only removes our guilt, it not only says, Tommy, I've taken away the guilt of your sins, but you know what, Tommy, I'm taking away your shame. And I take away your shame because even if being white was a bad thing, it doesn't matter anymore because in me, you are part of one new man. Your identity is different now. That's important to get. He says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility in verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to those and peace to those who were near. In other words, apparently Jesus, uh, after I, I assume they're talking about his post-resurrection appearances, that he announced what he accomplished. That the gospel is, has, has accomplished not only forgiveness of sins, not only justification, not only sanctification, but it has accomplished the process of people who have trusted Christ becoming one new man. That the, this process of reconciliation and peace is happening. And he says, for in him we have both have access in one spirit to the Father. I think what else Paul is getting at here is not just that Jesus himself preached to those who are far off, but Jesus himself preached through the apostles, Jesus preached through the, his prophets, and Jesus preaches through his people. As we've looked through the, 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 the Bible, if you look at the book of Acts, the whole church was started not because the apostles went out and started churches everywhere. Or the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and persecution happened and just average believers like us got sent out and we just started telling people about Jesus and what do you know, churches began. So Christ announces, he preaches to those who are far off and those who are near, but I think primarily he does it through his people. And let's look finally at the logical end of the Gospels. Remember, notice he said, therefore, in verse 13 he says, but now, and then verse 19 he says, so then. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he says to, to the Gentiles, those outside, those like us, you are part of a new kingdom, you're part of a new family, and you're part of a new building, right? He says that you're part of a new kingdom. He says you, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of, of the household of God. In, in other words, he, he not only says you're part of a new kingdom, but he says you're actually part of a new family. And I think that's an important for him to add, because if he said you're part of a new kingdom, right, I, you can live in a kingdom and not really have to rub elbows with people. Right? You can, you can live in a kingdom and say, oh, well, over there, that's where those kind of people live, and over there, that's where those kind of people live, and over there, that's where those kind of people live. He says you're part of a new kingdom, but he says you're also part of a new family. In other words, guess what? You've got to have Thanksgiving with those people and those people and those people. That all the people that are part of this kingdom are also part of your family, which means you ought to be in relationship with them. Now, you can't be in relationship with every single Christian who ever lived or is living, but you get his point. 
is that we're not, we, we, God is not making this thing so we can all just be part of a kingdom and sort of getting in our little Christian pods and just going about our life. That we're meant to be related as family. And the final thing here, he says, you're not only being part of a new kingdom, a part of a new family, but part of a new building. And I know some people are not going to like what I'm going to say right now. But guess what? I don't believe, according uh, what our tradition has taught for 600 years, what I personally believe, is that God is not in the business of building a new temple in Jerusalem. That I don't think that is ever going to happen, and I don't think the Bible teaches that. Why not? Among other things, because of what Paul said right now. God doesn't, whoever said amen, thank you. <laughs> what God is doing, the reason God doesn't need to build a new temple in Jerusalem is one, we don't need sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice, but also it's because he's building the temple right now. He's building the temple now. Notice what Paul said, all the things he says here are in present tense. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being, present tense, joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The purpose of the temple was a place for God to dwell with his people. The, you know the very first temple was Eden. And the purpose of Eden was to basically, to, to basically spread and cover the whole earth with the image of God so the whole earth would be full of the presence of God. The temple was a model of Eden. And what God is doing now in the church is he is filling the earth with his image and his presence. And someday this holy temple composed of, of his people will cover the whole earth and his presence will be known everywhere. But it's interesting because the image you get here is that this temple is being built brick by brick. That there are a lot of bricks out there. There are a lot of bricks around our church that don't know they're bricks yet. They don't know that they're supposed to be part of this holy temple. They don't know that, they're, that, they're, that there's a place. You know, you look at a building, if you've ever been a builder or a woodworker or something, you say, there's, there's a, I need a certain piece of wood for this thing. And I just, you know, I, when I see it, I'll know it. That's what people are like, I think. There are people out there that the church needs. They don't know it. We don't know it. They can't know unless we tell them. And they can't, we can't tell them we can't be effective unless we are unified, unless we, we stop being uh, without unity, not just within ourselves, but across races, across ethnicities. We have to stick together. We have to be together. And I'll close with this. You know, I, I, I don't want to show hands because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but in your heart, raise your hand. Have you all seen Toy Story? Okay. One, two, and three, I hope, at least. Was there a four? I don't think I liked that one. I think I erased it from my memory. Or maybe that was three, but either way. In every Toy Story, there, you know, obviously it wouldn't be a good story if there wasn't sort of some kind of conflict, if there wasn't some sort of angst. And at, at, at some point in every single Toy Story, there is some existential crisis which Woody solves by doing one thing. Like, they need to stick together. They need to, to stop being in despair. What does he tell them to do? Says, Buzz, lift up your foot. Buzz Lightyear is going to quit. Woody, Buzz, lift up your foot. What does it say under your foot? It ain't about who you are, Buzz. It's about who you belong to. 
We need to go. We need to stick together. Oh, why can't? Why do we need to stick together? All the toys. Lift up your foot, dinosaur. Lift up your foot, bus. Lift up your foot, potato head. Lift up your foot. What does it have on your foot? It says Andy. All the feet say Andy. Why? Because they belong to Andy. The reason they stick together is not because they're gutting it out and not because they have to, but because they all belong to the same person and therein lies their hope. That is the same. The same is true for us. Our hope is not in that we can figure out reconciliation or that we can figure out how to be good enough or we can figure out how to combat or confront critical race theory or anything. Our hope is in the fact that we all belong to the same person regardless of what the color of your skin is. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that um, one way or another you would help our church to, to model what is in this passage, that you would help us to, to figure out what it means to live into what you have already created and are creating. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen.